is beautiful. Every color is powerful. Every color is worthy. Try to bury us. They didn't realize we were seeds. They didn't realize you were seeds. They open doors so others can walk through them. Your legacy is every life you have ever touched. I'm Stella Saliari, and this is Salt the Podcast, a series of encounters with inspiring women. They're healers, activists, mothers, educators, and world changers. Together, we create community, share knowledge, amplify voices, heal, and break narratives by elevating a new generation. Welcome to Salt the Podcast. My guest today is Veronika Lawlen. Veronika grew up as a monolingual German who started to develop a passion for different languages and cultures early on in her life. That is why she spent time as a student in England, Mexico, and the U.S., where she studied and taught German, English, and Spanish. After graduating with a PhD in applied linguistics, she turned her passion into a job and became a research scientist. Veronika is also the mom of Ella and Alexander, married to a native Hawaiian, and the woman behind Bilingual Babies, which she launched in 2018 and where she shares personal experience and knowledge about raising children with more than one language. This year, she also published her first bilingual children's book. Today's title is To Learn a Language is to Have One More Window from Which to Look at the World, and we will speak about how language develops in the brain, the importance of reading, elite bilingualism, and a lot more. Welcome, Veronica. I'm very happy that you're here today and that you took the time to speak to us. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. And let us start with the first question. So who is Veronica? Share a little bit about yourself. Mm -hmm. So I'm a 38-year-old mom of uh, two uh, little bilinguals, uh, Ella and Alexander. And um, yeah, I've had a passion for languages all my life, basically. Languages are uh, a big part of my life, starting in school. And then I eventually went to study languages and turned languages into my job. So turned my hobby into my job, basically. So by day, I'm a research scientist. Uh, I work for an educational testing service where I do foundational research in the area of a English, primarily English language learning and assessment and English language teaching. And then by night, I uh, usually write a little, which, uh, you know, uh, translates into a blog that I have, uh, bilingualbabies.com. And uh, yeah, I, languages and cultures are a main part in so far as I'm transferred from Germany to the U.S. So when I was in uh, college and studying languages, I actually met somebody at the University of Hawaii where I studied for a year. And uh, that person, he's a native Hawaiian. He eventually became my husband. And so after I we met in Hawaii, he finished his PhD in Hawaii and uh, became a professor in uh, in Wisconsin. So he moved to Madison, Wisconsin. I had to go back to Germany after the year in Hawaii to finish my PhD. So we did a long distance relationship, Germany, US for a year. And then I got 
the job uh, at ETS in Princeton, and then we did ETS, uh, you know, Princeton, uh, Madison for another two years. And finally, we met in New Jersey, which is almost the middle between Hawaii and Germany. So we've been living in New Jersey for the past seven years now and have two children, Ella and Alexander, who were both born and raised here in New Jersey. So that's basically in a nutshell who I am. Thank you so much. That's beautiful. And of course, um, today's topic is around languages. And you've already mentioned it, that you are the founder of Bilingual Babies, which is a blog that you founded in 2018. So tell us a little bit about its history, its mission. What does it mean to you? And, and why did you start this blog? Mm -hmm. So even before I became a mom in 2016, some friends and other people came to me asking questions about raising their children with multiple languages. And I, it wasn't one of my main areas of research. So I sometimes didn't, didn't have the right answers for them and uh, started to read up a little on it. And then when I became a mom myself, that topic obviously became of even more interest. And I began uh, reading more and more about it and then eventually writing about it because my firstborn had a tough time falling asleep at night. So I found myself sleep, uh, sitting in her room uh, for almost an hour waiting for her to fall asleep. So to kill that time, I uh, took my laptop upstairs with me and just sat there and uh, started writing about bilingualism, about bilingual parenting. And eventually, two years later in 2018, I finally found the courage to uh, put all that writing into a website or a blog and published it as uh, Bilingual Babies. And ever since, um, I have actually, you know, kind of created more and more and have found myself in many more conversations with other parents. A big motivation that has kind of started this and has kept me going is that parents, a lot of parents struggle with bilingualism because I, what I find is kind of a lack of knowledge behind it. They give up because it does take some additional courage. You have to be able or want to walk the extra mile in order to make it work. And so I hope that the platform contributes to that, um, to helps parents to learn a little more about the subject matter and eventually give their children the gift of multiple languages and, you know, not give up in the process. Yes, yes. I can totally understand what you're talking about because I myself was raised bilingually and now my kids are being raised with three languages, actually four languages and uh, it's not an easy road and it needs a lot right. of commitment and uh, yes it's not always easy but I think it's very very important and that's also actually my next question what would you say are the advantages of raising kids with more than one language? Actually there is I think there is a number of advantages, more advantages than anything. <laughs> and it's almost like a recipe for success. So for once, kids who are raised with multiple languages, obviously, you know, they have, they have the advantages to be able to communicate in more than one language. But there's also other advantages beyond just the ability to speak two languages. For instance, bilingual kids have been found to have better cognitive abilities. So research 
suggests that there is a clear link between bilingualism and cognition. So different studies uh, have shown that children who speak multiple languages, um, they develop what is called enhanced executive control. That means um, they can effectively manage higher cognitive processes. So they tend to be better problem solvers, um, may have better memories and more flexible minds. And um, another feature that is a clear advantage is uh, they were shown to have better social skills. So that's actually connected with yeah, pretty good news for monolingual parents. So there were some research studies that found that children who are either speak or at least are regularly exposed to multiple languages, they develop better social skills. There were studies conducted, one study that was conducted in Chicago. Um, so researchers at the University of Chicago, they did an experiment. They presented four to six-year-old children with different language backgrounds. So you had a group of monolingual children, bilingual children, and children who were just exposed to another language but didn't speak it. So exposure kids, if you want. Um, they had them, uh, they confronted them with a situation in which the children had to consider somebody else's perspective. So the children could see three toy cars, a small one, a medium one, and a large one. And the kids could see all three cars, but they could also see that the adult who was placed opposite them could only see the medium and the large car. So when the adult asked if they could move the small car, bilingual and exposure children um, would more often reach for the medium-sized car than the monolingual children who would reach for the very small one. So they basically understood that the medium-sized car must be the one that the adult was referring to because the adult could not see the smallest of the three cars. And this, this study that was done in Chicago was then repeated with babies between the ages of 14 and 16 months. And they could see two bananas and the adult could only see one banana. So again, they had the same result, the babies who were raised bilingually and those who were exposed on a regular basis, they would reach more often than not to the banana that was visible to the adult when the adult asked for it. So, it, and I think the finding makes total sense because bilingual children and those with regular exposure, they grow up considering context and different perspectives. They consistently have to evaluate who speaks which language. And so they have to take their perspective of the other person. And I thought that was a uh, pretty interesting uh, research that does speak to uh, better social skills in the end. Yeah, super interesting. I knew about the one with the car, but I didn't know the one with the banana with the babies. Mm -hmm. So that's incredible. Yeah, it's incredible how early that actually starts. Yes. Uh, and how early that makes a difference too. And what would you tell parents who, because I often meet parents that, that they give up or they think this mm -hmm. is bad for my child if we mix the languages or if we expose them to more than one language. There are all these mm -hmm. myths around it, right? Yeah. What would you tell them? Like, Because I always tell them, don't give up, speak your language, even if the kids might take longer to respond in your language or even if the kid might take longer to speak, don't give up. And I always, of course, mention my own kids that... Yeah. Um, Yeah, that speak different languages and where it works. So I have like proof. And mm -hmm. I also mention, of course, myself, because I'm also proof of 
that it's possible. But what would you tell those parents? Um, I would tell them that they, um, first of all, I would ask them to make a plan. Um, like, how do you want to approach your own bilingual journey? Like, uh, you know, do you follow a certain a certain structure. So do you have one parent who speaks one language, the other parent speaks the other language, or do you speak the minority language in your house only? Do you, or do you have a certain time and place where you speak language? So making a plan and setting a clear goal for yourself, I think it's is a very important first step. And as a second step, to think about the support network that you have because raising a bilingual child just by yourself when you're the only speaker of the language is is pretty daunting that's your it, case right yeah it's my case but then you know i also have my mother who we facetime with my sister so we have uh, at least virtually family support and i also looked for other german speakers around here to build such a support network And I think a third point that I would make is that you have to find your own rhythm. There's no right or wrong in terms of how you approach, uh, you know, raising your kids bilingually. There might be a lot of people who have something to say about it. And I would sure. advise everybody to listen and then extract the information and the advice that is valuable for your own situation. Yes, totally. Like, for instance, what we do is uh, one parent, one language. So I will speak mm -hmm. Greek to the kids. My partner speaks Spanish. And then um, obviously in the school and the daycare, they have Dutch. And then my partner and I speak English with each other. So mm -hmm. when we sit on the table, we have this rule that we say you can either speak Spanish or Greek, like no Dutch, no English. And that mm -hmm. also helps us to practice in each other's language because I'm not fluent in Spanish. He's not fluent in Greek. And we yeah. speak also a lot about language. Like we speak about the fact that we have many languages in our house. Like it's a topic, you know, mm. um, sometimes we choose a word and then we ask someone, okay, what is that word in Spanish? How do you say that word in Dutch? So it's also a topic in our family because we also want the kids to be aware of it. And what I also love, because the school uh, the kids go to, um, the teachers are extremely supportive of That's them right. being raised with more than one language, because quite often you also have teachers that can sabotage everything, right? Yeah. That then they say, oh, you cannot speak that many languages at home. But we've been extremely lucky. The teachers really value the languages the kids speak. Mm -hmm. And um, also, for instance, one of my kids, um, when they have birthdays, they sing happy birthday in all kinds of languages, Mandarin, Arabic, mm. Surinamese even in the, um, yeah, in Italian, in Turkish, all kinds of languages. And it's like really, really beautiful to see that. Yeah, that's nice. Yeah, yeah we're in a uh, relatively fortunate situation there too. Uh, Ella, um, she's now four. She goes to daycare or preschool, as you call it here. And she has a teacher who's very hands-on and involved. Uh, they all, she's monolingual English, but she's very open-minded. Mm. And uh, just this morning, I actually uh, did a reading session for the kids via Zoom. And after the reading session, uh, the, the kids wanted to count in German to 10. <laughs> so showing off their abilities. And then they followed that with counting to 10 in Spanish. <laughs> so it's, you know, these small, um, small acts that make a difference, I think, in the kids' lives to just establish a positive attitude towards other cultures, other languages. Yeah, that's beautiful. Um, how does language develop in the brain? Can you share a little bit of 
knowledge about that. Of course, there's still a yeah. lot that is unknown. Yeah. But what is known? What can you share with us? <laughs> okay. Um, that's actually, yeah, that's a very, uh, very comprehensive question. <laughs> and uh, I'm, I'm not necessarily a, a kind of uh, psycholinguist, but uh, the, the very interesting thing is that kids and babies are basically geniuses at learning a language. If you think about it, if we drop you off in a foreign country with a foreign language starting tomorrow and you have five years to learn the language, but you can't write anything down and um, you basically uh, are on your own to figure out the new language. That's the situation that a child faces when they enter our world, right? Um, the thing that makes them geniuses are that they are pre-wired for languages in their brain. So the brains of children, they have the ability to discriminate all the sounds that we have on earth, basically. So they are pre-wired for every single language sound there is, whether that's a language that you speak in Africa, whether that's a language in Asia, uh, European language, anything. So the child is born into a certain language environment, and then the brain of a child takes statistics. So when you basically become an expert in a certain set of sounds that make your language. So for example, a child that is born into a monolingual German family has the ability over the first few months of his or her life to distinguish all the sounds, but then they become what uh, Patricia Cool, a professor um, in California, has labeled culture-bound listeners. So you are only able to then discriminate the sounds of the German language eventually. And for bilingual children, that means they can discriminate the sounds that belong to the languages that they speak. So for instance, for Ella, she can discriminate German and English sounds. But then as soon as the, uh, the babies become a little older, and older here I'm talking about within the first year <laughs> of their lives, the ability to distinguish sounds in general decreases. And you are kind of set to... Uh, yeah, to listen within the sounds of your language or languages. And I thought that's actually very interesting. So the ability to learn languages is at the highest within the first month of life, and then it eventually goes down. And there's something called the critical period around, yeah, it's, it's a little debated on when that is exactly, but some people say it's around the age of seven or eight then your ability to learn another language decreases rapidly, technically. So learning another language in the sense of a native language. I mean, it makes also sense, right? If you mm -hmm. look at us, how difficult yeah, it gets true. to learn a language the older you become. Yeah. For me, I used to be so good at languages and now I'm, I'm still not able to speak Spanish well, you know, and it really bothers me. And I'm sometimes mm. thinking, how come I cannot really learn this language? I'm already speaking more than one language, obviously, and I speak my language as well, but it, I find it really tricky, you know, so it makes a lot of sense to what you're saying. Yeah, it takes a lot more of an effort. I mean, you yeah. can draw on strategies that you have from other languages and transfer some of it, but it, yeah, it takes more time and effort to actually learn it. Yes, yes, absolutely. You know, my next question is a little bit about 
the language status, the concept of language status and um, how elite bilingualism affects the outcome of bilingual education for children. And what I mean here is that certain languages um, unfortunately have a different mm. status than others. Yeah. And it's most of the time the former, <laughs> the languages from the former colonies. Mm -hmm. um, and I've seen often that parents who don't speak such a fancy language, and I'm including my own because Greek um, mm. is also not, not always that fancy. Um, they, I, I've seen people feeling ashamed of their language or they mm. feel like, okay, my kids don't need to learn this language because it's not important. Like um, mm. I have friends uh, who are originally from the Philippines. So the parents thought it would be more important that their children learn German instead of Tagalog because they say, Who speaks that nowadays? No one cares about this language. It's not important. Other parents say, um, people look down on my language. I don't want my kids to be disadvantaged at school. I don't want my kids to be looked at in a different way. Of course, it's also has a lot to do with racism. I remember meeting once uh, a client whose parents were from Spain and she was a second generation immigrant child in Germany. And she decided not to speak Spanish with her kids because she had been discriminated against in school a lot. And she didn't want that for her kids. And I'm always so sad when I hear this. And I'm really a big, big advocate for teaching kids the languages that you have, no matter how many people speak it, no matter what the language is. And I'm also very much outspoken when it comes to this. And this is mm. a topic that I get very emotional about um, because, of course, it's also linked to racism. And um, yes, what is your standpoint here? What do you have to say? Yeah, I, I agree. There are some languages that are held in higher regards than others. And oftentimes that's a social issue, <laughs> unfortunately. And I'm very much, uh, yeah, on the same page with you. I think if that happens, that actually parents give up uh, kind of speaking to their children in the language that may even be closer to their heart, that they may feel more emotional about, that is a huge loss because it means uh, that you're giving up part of your identity and uh, you are also kind of not presenting your child with a certain heritage that is theirs. So, yeah, unfortunately you see that. And I think that's, that's, um, Yeah, a main issue, not only, you know, in Europe, but also here in the United States oftentimes. And I'm always welcoming any initiatives that are helping to raise awareness for the importance of heritage languages. So here in the U.S., there is an initiative called the Seal of Biliteracy. I don't know if you've heard about that. No. It's uh, an award that is uh, granted by schools, districts, organizations, or states in the United States. And it recognizes students who have studied and attained proficiency in two or more languages by high school graduation. So if you're um, you know, a Spanish speaker, your heritage language is Spanish. If you hone those skills throughout your high school graduation, uh, throughout your high school years, and then by graduation, um, you're actually biliterate in uh, not just English, but maybe also your uh, Spanish, your second native language, then you receive an extra award from this organization. And a lot of states here in the United States have already bought into it and are awarding kids such, uh, such an honor, if you want. So it's it's basically a way of 
underlining or substantiating the importance and the achievement uh, that has been made if you know a t- child or teenager is able to read, write, speak, and listen in more than one language. Yes, without distinguishing between the languages, right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's right. So it's basically for any language. So yeah, well, that's, yeah, that's nice. Thing. I remember when I, um, because you know, I grew up in Germany as well, and when I went to university and mm-hmm. I did linguistics, mm-hmm. and I saw that there were seminars on multilingualism, multilingualism mm-hmm. in the classroom, bilingualism. I yeah. was like, wow, people are actually studying what I'm living. Mm-hmm. And I felt so empowered and I felt so acknowledged. And I remember my professors telling me um, when I finished my, uh, my studies, they told me, please don't leave because then I left Germany mm-hmm. because we need people like you. We need people like yeah. you who speak many languages, who understand certain things, who have this immigration background. And um, I also wrote my uh, thesis on code switching. So mm-hmm. what, of course, a lot of bilingual or multilingual children do that they switch or not just children, people that they switch yeah. among languages. And that's super normal. And um, I mm-hmm. saw that there was a lot of recognition within the university. And that to me meant a lot. Mm-hmm. And um, yes, yeah, so thank you for sharing this initiative. Yeah, that and uh, uh, I think from... It's still with very much an academic concept, but uh, some schools in um, multilingual contexts are also beginning to establish translanguaging in their regular classrooms. So translanguaging goes beyond what you just mentioned, code switching. So you don't just necessarily jump from one language to the other or code switch if you want, um, but you use your entire linguistic repertoire. So if you have a context, you know, where you have different languages that are lived within society, it makes a lot of sense to not just go and uh, kind of um, use one in the classroom, but draw upon the entire language repertoire that the children bring along. So like Spanglish, let's say. Spanish Um, and English, or a little bit different. Yeah, uh, so... Spanglish, yeah, you could. I think you can call it that if you want. Like, in the sense, you would be allowed to bring to speak Spanish and to speak English in the classroom. Wow, yeah. that's that's very interesting. I would love if you could send me a link after our conversation about it. I would love to yeah. to mm-hmm. read more about this. This is super interesting. Yeah, there there is a um, yeah, there is a lot of research going on in that area, and uh, obviously, it requires teachers to. Yeah, uh, you know, be at least have like a f- basic uh, l- language skills in the languages that are spoken by their students. Yes, yes, of course. You also speak a lot about reading in your blogs, mm-hmm. and I'm also a big fan of reading and books. And I saw the other day a picture of your daughter on Instagram, <laughs> where your house was like full of books. I don't know how many books you had there—fifty books, maybe even it was more. A lot. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And I was like, wow, she's really going for it. And of course, it was a gift, I think, right? You got a lot of yes. free. Um, and you always emphasize that reading is very important. Reading is very important in general. But mm. um, if you have more than one language, it's, of course, even more important. Mm. And can you elaborate a little bit on this? Yeah, I think uh, reading is extremely important because it gives you a way of interacting with your child. So when... When I, what I said about statistics that the children take when learning a language um, earlier, 
that research that was conducted also found that you can't just place your child in front of the TV and they will absorb a language. That's not going to work. But in order for this statistical process to function in the brain, it requires human interaction. So reading is a way of, you know, interacting with your kid. It gives you, books give you a real purpose for conversation with your child. So that's, I think, one big key aspect that books help with uh, language acquisition. But they also expose children to a wide variety of new topics, new contents, and new words, if you want. So if you have a book about mermaids, or you have a book about astronauts, or you have a book about a construction site. So those are very different sets of um, contents, of vocabulary, that you may not cover in your everyday life. So when I talk in German with my daughter, we go through certain routines, you know, brush your teeth, uh, put your shoes on. So these are certain vocabulary, certain words, certain phrases that she's very much used to, but we would not necessarily talk about astronauts. So a book in that sense can help you dive into different words, different topics with your child. Also, if you if you read to children, they actually hear the sounds of the language spoken. So, you know, they pick up how different words may be pronounced. Uh, they may pick up on different speech varieties. Um, and then when they're older, it, they may be able to read along. So they understand the connection between sound and letter, which helps them to, you know, st uh, start the reading and writing processes more easily. And uh, yeah, you basically help your child become a reader, uh, a good reader throughout their lifetime if you implement that early on. Yes. So I think those are a lot of uh, reasons in favor of books uh, that can strengthen your bond with your child as well. Absolutely, absolutely. And because you mentioned the TV, maybe it's good also to quickly talk about that because people mm -hmm. think I can just park my kid in front of the TV and they will learn the language just like that. Mm -hmm. But you just said that this is actually a myth. Yeah. There, uh, there was a study done by Patricia Cool and her team uh, in California, and they... Uh, they had monolingual American babies, <laughs> monolingual as far as that goes at that age, uh, come into the, uh, into the language lab for a while and they would expose them to, uh, to Chinese speakers. And then they had another group that was exposed to the sounds through screen time, basically. So what they found is that the ones that had interpersonal interaction in Chinese, they actually dis were able to develop um, chi the Chinese language in their brains versus the kids who just saw it on TV, they would not. Yeah. So we can actually say TV is maybe a good addition, but it's not really doing the job. Yes. I think it's good uh, supplementary yeah. input because, uh, you know, when kids watch TV, there's certain cultural concepts. I always give the example of Huey, Louie, and Dewey in English. I had no idea who that was, but I don't, I don't know it either. Uh, tick, trick, and track. Oh, from the, Does that ring from a bell? the Donald Duck. 
Yeah. So okay. <laughs> <laughs> knowing the language, you know, the, those uh, cartoons in different languages is a certain, uh, yeah, cultural knowledge that yeah. you also um, get through TV exposure. So it, it can also help with listening skills. You know, you they listen to different speakers of a language. So that helps. But I think it's ideal if you watch TV with your child together. Uh, so then, you you know, gives you another incentive to talk about it later on. Yes, of course, of course. But of course, we also know it's not always possible because we also have like sometimes right. you're happy that there is a TV. Just go right. and sit so I can, I don't know, cook, read, whatever yep. I have to do. Work. Yep. Guilty as charged. Yeah, we're not saying TV is bad, but no. I think it's important to state that TV is not really doing the job. Um, yeah. that it's really about having um, this interaction. Exactly. And Veronica, you've also, because I've subscribed to your newsletter from the start, and mm-hmm. I've seen, of course, your um, yeah your journey with bilingual babies. And the last newsletter that I received, I think a month ago, mentioned that you wrote a book now. You wrote mm-hmm. a bilingual children's book. So can you share with us about, yeah, share with us about your book, yeah. actually? <laughs> so the book is called uh, Martin and the Red Cloak, um, Martin und der Rote Umhang, oder Rote Mantel. Um, and yeah, so that that came about because I, as a kid, I loved Saint Martin uh, in Germany. In Germany, you celebrate Saint Martin's Day with a lantern parade. So you make a lantern, you go to the parade, you walk through the city or town with your lantern, and then you watch the sor- story of Saint Martin being acted out by a bonfire. And that, unfortunately, in the United States is not known at all, uh, this tradition um, of St. Martin. And so I, in order to expose my own daughter to this tradition, I started a lantern parade with her daycare. Oh, mm -hmm. So uh, three years ago, I introduced the idea to them and uh, gave them a, a template on how to make lanterns. And so the two preschool classes actually made lanterns with the kids. And then we had a parade scheduled for 5 p.m. on a November night with all the parents coming in. And so they switch off all the lights at the YMCA daycare. Um, So everybody watches the children walk through the building with their lantern and they walk uh, through the hallways into the back of the building. And what I usually do is... Um, they sit there on, they sit down on a carpet and I would tell them the story of St. Martin while I show them pictures through PowerPoint on a screen. And then, uh, they get their, uh, Martin's Brezel, which is like a sweet pretzel that we traditionally eat for St. Martin in Germany. I found a bakery in Philadelphia that was willing to give it a try and they did a good job coming up with them. And, um, but what I... Yeah, what I didn't uh, find was an English version of the story. And the German books on St. Martin, I, yeah, I found them a little lacking. They were not really child appropriate, I thought. And so I just one day decided, okay, I'm just going to write my own. <laughs> and so I did that. I had it illustrated and then took a friend on board to help me proofreading and, you know, edit it a lot. And so the two of us actually published the book this year in October. This is incredibly inspiring what you just shared. 
daycare. Not just the book, but also what you implemented into the daycare. I think this is amazing. And you've just given me an idea. Okay. <laughs> like, I think this is something we should do because what we discussed earlier, right? There are all these myths around cultures and languages mm. and all the stereotypes. And I think what you did is just incredible. I'm really amazed at what you ju just shared. And of course, that also the daycare um, was willing to do this. Mm -hmm. This is, yeah, I'm, I'm in awe right now. So I will share this with others and I will think about something that I could also maybe bring into the school of the mm -hmm. kids, because I think this is beautiful. And of course, your book is very beautiful too. I didn't want to uh, <laughs> no, no, no. just ignore this, but I love this initiative. And then of course, mm -hmm. what, what came out of it, like that you wrote this book in, at the end. And yeah, it allows me to show the kind of core of the story, the idea of sharing is caring um, much more coherently. And uh, so this year it was actually good that the book came out because we could not do the Lantern Parade due True. to COVID. So uh, I, I gave all the different classes a book and they, uh, they read it with their teachers and then talked about, uh, you know, what they could share. And so they took it from there, which was nice to see that implemented. Wonderful. This is really beautiful. Who has been your soul, Veronica? You know, my podcast is called Sold the Podcast. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, I would like to know who has been your soul, who has inspired you? Um, I think there were, were three, three women uh, overall uh, that have inspired me throughout my life. The first one might sound a little cheesy, but I have been a huge fan of Carrie Fisher, the actress who played Leia in Star Wars. But beyond that role, she actually wrote a number of books and uh, her way with words is just amazing. Um, so I, I was always in at awe how she was able to express, uh, express points in a funny, sometimes a little sarcastic form of way. Um, so I've really kind of followed her work along and uh, have read and listened to every single book that came out uh, about her, about her life, and have really enjoyed her way of communicating. Because I think for me, communication is one of the key features of life. Like so much depends upon good communication. It makes or breaks relationships, um, whether they are at a personal level or at a level of international politics. A lot of mis you know problems and issues occur because of miscommunication. So really having an ability to express yourself, I think, is really, really important. And that's something that I took took away from uh, Fisher's work and that has inspired me to, to pass that along to my own children and hope, you know, in the sense that I hope to be able to turn them into efficient communicators uh, and help them to find a way with words that uh, allows them to advance in life. And then um, the second and third Uh, women, they are actually professors that I had the honor of either studying with or uh, working with. Um, and these professors are Judith Kormosh at Lancaster University and Paula Winkie in Michigan. Um, the reason why I'm really inspired by them is that these are two women who are not only huge names in their field, they have, a, they have created a wealth of 
knowledge um, that has advanced language testing and also kind of groups in language testing, like uh, learners with disabilities in the case of Cormash, they have given these groups a voice. So they have really made a difference with their work. But it's not only their work that inspires me, it's actually their, um, the fact that they also have families. So as an academic, you know, you can, you can easily be married to your job. And so you can, it's a very demanding job to be in academia, to be a professor. So you can give 100% of your life into it. And a lot of professors do. They become very big names. But I very much admire those that also are able and disciplined in a way to also balance a family life next to their job. And in the, in the case of Paula and Judith, um, they have been able to do that. So they have uh, they have raised children or in the process of raising children, and they nevertheless you know uh, created a huge difference for other children around the world as well through their work. Very nice. I will look them up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and to whom do you want to pass the salt? What do you want to say? Or what? I mean, yeah. To whom do you want to pass the salt? What do you want to say to the younger generation, to the next generation? Because you know my podcast is also about the next generation. We are passing the salt. Mm. I, I think what I would say is that they should f- follow their heart in the sense of, you know, go after what is important and what feels right for you in your life. Um, and I think... When you do that, there's always a niche that you can carve out for yourself where you can make a difference. So, you know, don't just go after a certain career because somebody tells you to, but make your way, make your own career following your heart to the extent possible. Um, And then you will make a difference and you will put a tiny little brick into the huge wall that is life. and you know, eventually you you will leave an imprint. Yes, you will leave a legacy. Mm-hmm. That's very beautiful. And do you have a question for me? Um, yeah, I actually do. I was wondering how you find or how you select women for this podcast. Because I'm sure there's a lot of women out there who have really made a difference and oftentimes, you know, things go unnoticed. Yes, that's actually nice what you said, the unnoticed. Um, I had this idea of the podcast more than two years ago. And last year when I was praying with my daughter, I felt like this girl is changing my life. And one of the things she changed was that I really said, I will realize this podcast, this idea that I have in my head. Because I have met so many amazing women in my life that I felt like I need to create a platform for them to be noticed. Mm-hmm. that's why I like that you said unnoticed to to be able to speak to speak their truth to talk about what they know what they've been through to share their story so this is how it actually started and then it also evolved into um, passing the salt like uh, inspiring the next generation leaving a legacy behind and making a change so when I choose um, the speakers from my podcast um, because there are a few things that are very important for me one is um feminism 
anti-racism, and empathy. I look at people who either with their work, through their story, or with what they do, um, play a role in that, um, who try to, um, yeah, who are feminists, let's say, who play their part in raising a generation that will be feminist, people who are anti-racist, who really speak out against racism, um, people who have something to share that can make a change. So I have six different categories of topics. One is representation matters. One is female solidarity, female healers. And I look um, for women that have something to say when it comes to those categories. And um, then there are women that I love, that I admire, that I care about, women that I've met on my way, and they have left, let's say, an impression on me. They have inspired me. Um, this is how I choose my, uh, yeah, my people. And then, of course, um, I also look on social media um, and I have friends who share stories with me with women about women that I don't know. And then I reach out to them and I ask if they want to speak um, on my podcast. So this is how I kind of select my speakers. And I'm, of course, also open to people reaching out to me. Mm. And um, yes. Yeah, I think that's a great initiative. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Veronica. Um, we've come now actually to the end of our conversation. And um, I always honor a woman at the end of my podcast. And today I want to honor Rupi Kaur. Do you know her? No, unfortunately, but okay. I soon will. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I was thinking whom to honor today because I wanted it to be also about language. So I think it will become clear why I chose her. She's an Indian-born Canadian poet, artist, and performer who as a 21-year-old university student wrote, illustrated, and self-published her first poetry collection called Milk and Honey. Next came The Sun and Her Flowers, and her most recent book is called Homebody, which debuted number one on bestseller lists across the world. Ruby's work touches on love, loss, trauma, healing, femininity, and migration. And something that's very special about her poetry is that she uses only lowercase and full stops as punctuations. And there is a story behind it. And the story is that when she began writing poetry, she could read and understand her mother tongue, Punjabi, but she had not yet developed the skill set to write poetry in it. So Punjabi is written in either Shamuki or Germuki script. And within the Germuki script, there are no uppercase or lowercase letters. So the letters are treated the same. And Rupi enjoys the simplicity as there is also a level of equality attached to it. And this is something she wants to see in the world, that there is more equality. So she put that into her writing. Then also the, the punctuation that exists within the Germaki script is a full stop. So they only have the full stop. So in order to symbolize and preserve the small details of her mother tongue, she ascribes them within her work, a visual manifestation and ode to her identity as a diasporic Punjabi Sikh woman. It is about tying her own history and identity within her work. And I want to finish with one of her poems that is from her book, The Sun and Her Flowers. My voice is the offspring of two countries colliding. What is there to be ashamed of if English and my mother tongue made love? My voice is her father's words and mother's accent. 
What does it matter if my mouth carries two worlds? And the poem is entitled with accent. Very beautiful. Thank you. So yes, thank you, Veronica, for speaking to us today, for all the great wor work that you do. I will upload your information, of course, um, on my Instagram page. Thank you to everyone for listening. Feel free to visit my website, www.salt-thepodcast.com for more conversations. Follow me on Instagram. And of course, feel free to contact me. I'm always happy to hear from you. Something that is loved is never lost. I'm Stella Sagliari, and this is Salt the Podcast. Salt the Podcast. Salt the Podcast.